Yeah, thank you for tuning in. It's more than a podcast. Inexhaustible episodes, God's vast. Glorify Him as we broadcast the Lord's grace and God's wrath. More serious than a bomb blast. Full disclosure inside the title. No surprises, simply put, guys with Bibles. Yeah. Just some regular reborn reformed cats If it's in the Bible then they're gonna speak on that Cause the scripture is the final word okay. Competing ideas quite absurd Of this you can be quite assured <laughs> yeah. We were lost in the darkness of night immersed in sin But then the, the light, light emerged. emerged It was the Son of God, divine Christ that shines light The word in Genesis that assigned life in hindsight And was revealed through the prophets and apostles We magnify and expound on the power of the gospel Yeah, yeah to book of numbers chapter 6 starting in verse 22 there are a lot of blessings and benedictions uh, in scripture a lot of passages that proclaim the blessings of God to his people and um, this was one of my particular favorite texts in fact it's probably my most favorite blessing text um, it's called the, um, in the ESV it's called Aaron's Blessing, sometimes it's called the Aaronic Blessing or the Priestly Blessing, um, but regardless of what you call it, uh, I for one love to hear it, I love to read it, I love to consider it, so I'll, maybe I thought uh, we'd all enjoy considering it together this morning together. <laughs> uh, okay, Numbers 6. Uh, We'll start in verse 22 and go through verse 27. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name on the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So as verse uh, 23 says, this was a blessing for the priests to say to the people of Israel. Aaron and his sons were given the designation of priests. Uh, There were also uh, Levitical priests, the the Levites, uh, and they were all tasked with blessing the people. Now I find the placement of this blessing interesting in the text because it's, it's put in right at the end of a chapter, an entire chapter, about the Nazarite vow, which uh, that may be familiar to us from the story of Samson. Uh, he was under the Nazarite vow and obviously did not keep it very well. But it, it, it just seems interesting to me that at the end of this long chapter about uh, people who would take a vow to touch nothing of grapes, including wine, uh, to not cut their hair, to live a life of purity, touch nothing dead. Um, And then we get this blessing for all the people at the end of that. I find that kind of an interesting uh, position for this. Um, And it's kind of the last bit of of, um, instruction here before we get a segment of narrative uh, with the first offerings being offered in the tabernacle. I just find that kind of interesting. Uh, Before we talk about the text itself, I think it's important to talk about uh, the priesthood of all believers. Uh, Some people would talk about Old Testament texts like this and say that they're no longer relevant to us in the new covenant under Christ. All these things have passed away. They're of no use to us anymore. Um, But I, I believe this is very, very relevant for us. And I think talking about the priesthood of believers has to be part of that. Uh, and I actually have uh, three texts to talk about this, um, and I will actually read them to you. You've, you've noticed, uh, as Baptists, we don't give the title of priest to anybody. You know, we have elders, we have pastors. Uh, we don't give that title because, really, according to the Reformation, we have nobody standing between us and Christ. We are in communication with Christ. We receive the benefits of being united with Christ There is no man to stand between us and mediate for us to Christ. Uh, So I have a a few texts here. I'll read them to you. First is Exodus 19, 3 through 6. And you can write these references down if you like. 
And uh, I'm going to read these three, and then we'll see what, what they have in common. Exodus 19, 3 through 6. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountains, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The next text, way further back in the Bible, 1 Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then finally, uh, not too far away from here, Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6. Uh, I'll start, actually I'll start from verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Does anyone want to venture a guess as to what these three texts may have in common? Being a priest, being a priest. And he's not just talking to a specific group of people, a small group of people related to Aaron and his sons or from the tribe of Levi. He's talking to an entire nation. In fact, it says a, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. So we're to take from that that God never actually intended for just a mere small group of people to be priests. His intention for all time was to have an entire nation of priests, people who were coming to God in relationship directly the way that we are as Christians. So the people were meant to be priests. Uh, and God, for a period of time, made Aaron and his sons and the Levites, uh, gave them their designation for the purposes of tabernacle and temple worship. But God's plan all along was to have a nation of priests. So some good news is that uh, we're looking at the priesthood right here. For all of us who believe and are in Christ, you are a, a priest. Um, the Holy of Holies is in you. you, you uh, the Holy Spirit resides in you. Uh, you have the work and the ministry of Christ in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're indwelt. So if you're a believer, you are a priest under the last high priest, Jesus Christ. So another way to talk about it is we are living stones in a spiritual house, which, of which Christ is the cornerstone, um, according to Peter. So that's why our worship, when we come together, is participatory. We're not watching a man make sacrifices on our behalf, say, uh, in the Roman Catholic Mass, for example. We come and we bring our sacrifice of praise together. We, we encourage each other in the gospel. That priestly work of going directly to God, not having a mediator between us and God, is hugely important. So that's why I would say that this passage is really important for us to know because it not only has truths for us um, who are in the New Covenant to know for ourselves, but also I think we have, um, we have a great blessing to share this blessing with our fellow believers. Um, so a few, a few comments here about the actual three-line blessing itself. This blessing is not about you at all. Uh, this blessing is not a, uh, a Bethel music, Jesus is my boyfriend song lyric. This, this, and I'm glad about that. <laughs> this blessing is about Yahweh. Uh, if you look, God's covenant name is at the start of every line. Of course, in the Bible, we have the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is a designation for the what's called the tetragrammaton, the four-letter name of God that's given in Exodus 3. Y-H-W-H, uh, we'll see it spelled out with English letters. So this is the covenant name of God. 
um, which, you know, we have, the, we have the privilege of being able to say. So I like to use the name Yahweh, especially in places like this where it specifically designates that four-letter name uh, from the Old Testament. Uh, I, I, I personally love that. So, um, but we have to know that this, this is about Yahweh, who he is and what he does and what he does for us. Uh, it's not about us getting something, receiving something, or having some sort of um, name it, claim it type blessing if we say this magic formula, that if we say the words, then God will give it to us. No, we are recognizing in this blessing that God does bless his people and that we, uh, we love him for that and we see that truth. Um, another interesting thing is if you notice the, the lines, even in English, get progressively longer um, so verse 24 is relatively simple. 25 adds words. It's a little longer. And verse 26 is the longest of all and also uses the, the biggest words, the most syllables. And I think the translators in bringing this out in English are trying to show the cumulative effect of the blessings of God. That God has started out with rich blessings to richer blessings to even richer blessings or grace upon grace. And then, of course, there's some parallelism at work here. So if anybody has studied the Psalms before, and we're going to look at some Psalms this morning, these three lines essentially say the same thing, in essence, but use different words and different phrases to say them in complementary and not contradictory ways. Um, but that's a, a hallmark of, especially of biblical poetry. And these lines are set out like poetry. Um, and it says it, of course, three times. So we know from different parts of Scripture that when something is said twice, it's meant for emphasis. Uh, but here we have three uh, repetitions, three lines, which would, be, which would speak to the substantial, uh, comprehensive, total and complete blessing of God to his people. Any questions about any of that stuff before we start looking at the blessing itself? <laughs> okay. All right. We're going to break this down into six pieces. Uh, so the first is the Lord bless you. So obviously it would make sense that the, the priests who are called to issue blessings would say, the Lord bless you, to begin. It's a blessing. It was the job of the Levites and the priests to pronounce the blessings of Yahweh on his people. So Deuteronomy 10.8 and uh, Deuteronomy 21.5, we don't have to go there, but both of those say, lay out perfectly, that the job of the priests are to bless the people in the name of Yahweh. That's an important part. You're to bless the people not in your own name, not in your own power, your own authority. You bless the people in the name of Yahweh. So how does he bless us? Uh, which is a very good question. Um, and not just because I asked it. How does he bless us? Uh, he blesses us materially. If we want to turn to Leviticus 26... Uh, verses 3 through 13. There's going to be a list here uh, of material blessings that, that kind of give a, a full picture of some of the blessings that God has given to his people. Leviticus 26, 3 through 13. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of the sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in your land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you, and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store, long kept. And you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. 
I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of their yoke and made you walk erect. So there's a whole list of good and great blessings that, that God gives to his children. Uh, and many of these are, are, these are sort of the, um, the daily bread type, type blessings. Um, you're going to have food. You're going to have plenty of food stored up. I will make, you know, I will make the, the, the planting and sowing seasons fruitful for you. All these kinds of things. These are very good and glorious blessings that God promised to his people. And again, this is not in a name it, claim it sense. It's just that God will provide for his people what they need to live their life. Uh, and so we have also spiritual blessings. Uh, Ephesians 1.3 covers this very well. So God not only supports our life with material blessings, gives us the food, the shelter, uh, the resources that we need to be able to live physically in the world, um, but he, he goes much, much deeper than even that. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The Beatitudes themselves are based on this kind of thing. Um, we are not only supported in our physical life by God, we're blessed with life, with the tools and the resources we need for our life, but we're blessed with, uh, now in salvation, in the church, we're blessed with spiritual life as well. We have forgiveness in Christ. We have hope for eternity. Um, we have uh, the good news to share with the world. These are all particular wonderful blessings, uh, and they're all bestowed by God, not by us, and given by grace alone. Let's look at Psalm 134, a short psalm, and if you want, you can stick your bulletin in the book of Psalms, because we'll be back several times more <laughs> in the course of this morning. Psalm 134, I like to think of as a, uh, a cycle of blessing, and I think it, it it proves the, uh, the concept of we receive blessing from God as his children, and as we are blessed, we bless his name, and by doing so, then we, we bless others as well. Psalm 134. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. So the people, they, people come to worship. They come, they bless the Lord, even those who stand by night in the house of the Lord. So this is a 24-7 occupation uh, in the Old Testament. There, was, there were people attending the temple at all hours of the day, and they lift up their hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. So they're in adoration. Uh, and may the Lord bless you. We can see as these people are blessed, they're coming to his house and blessing his name in gratefulness. Thank you for your blessings. And then in turn, uh, they're, they're going out and blessing his name to others. And of course, we're, we're most richly blessed by and in the word of God. So we know that God blesses us in his word, but really the word itself is a blessing to us. And we receive blessing simply by meditating on it. That's sort of the heart of Psalm 1, for instance, um, that you're blessed uh, like a tree planted by, by waters because we, when we meditate on the word. Another interesting example of blessing is the much misused uh, prayer of Jabez from First Chronicles. You know, he does ask for material help. You know, he asks for, for good things. But the most important part of his prayer that is usually the one that's overlooked by folks is that your hand might be with me. That God's fellowship, that the nearness of God be with him and give him shelter and, uh, and in doing so, then he would ask for the other things to be, be provided as, as Yahweh's child. And so I would say salvation would be considered the most precious and obvious blessing to the Christian. Um, similar to, uh, I would consider Matthew twenty five thirty four, where Jesus says at the last judgment, um, where he says of, of the redeemed, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. So that's an incredible blessing. All right, our next part, keep you. 
the, the Hebrew word shamar is used here, um, and I learned that from an application I'd love to talk to you about later if you'd like. <laughs> uh, shamar is a word that means literally to keep, to guard, or to tend to. Now, uh, I looked up this word and other instances of it in the Bible. It's actually the same word that was used in Genesis 2.15 uh, to refer to Adam keeping the garden, uh, which then was like, wow, that's, that's really interesting. Because remember, in John, uh, the resurrected Jesus is uh, mistaken by Mary for a gardener. So I just find that very interesting that Christ, the gardener at the end of John, is keeping us. He's tending us as his garden. Uh, I found that very fascinating. Um, I said we'd be back in Psalms, so turn just shortly to Psalm 121. Uh, this takes up the theme of keeping in a, a very concerted way. Uh, and obviously would say it much better than I would. It's a short psalm, so we can, just, we can read the whole thing. Why not? Psalm 121. Uh, this, another song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So you could, you could very well say that this blessing of the Lord keep you is very much tied in with his, um, his attribute as a keeper. He is a keeper. So who he puts his name on, he keeps. Uh, he never loses what is his. He never loses those who are his, uh, those who've been called by his name, the people that he has put his name on. And really, uh, John, in John 17, 11, Jesus prays for this very thing. Uh, he, uh, I'm going to turn to it, but you don't, you don't have to. Um, John 17, 11. This is in the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And I, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So this speaks to the security of the Christian. Jesus prayed that we be kept in God's name, and so we are. So you're not hanging out there on your own. Uh, haven't, you've been forgiven. Uh, you're not out there uh, trying to live according to your own devices. Their grace is yours. You are being kept by God uh, according to the gospel. Uh, you've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit so that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion uh, in Christ. Every believer is not only blessed with forgiveness, but he or she is kept secure in the arms of the Redeemer for eternity. All right, our next part is, uh, the Lord make his face to shine on you. I know we, we've talked in other times uh, about anthropomorphic language, um, which would be attributing a human attribute to something that does not have that. Usually, you know, it's, it's a spiritual uh, it's a spiritual tool for us. Uh, John 4.24 tells us that God is spirit, <clears throat> so there is no, there's no body. God does not have a face. Um, but we have faces. We understand what the meaning of a face is and what a face does. So we're, help, we're helpfully given that image in Scripture of the face of God. Now we know uh, that... God shines. You know, we actually, I didn't plan this, but we talked about that last week regarding the transfiguration, that there's divine vibrance. Uh, Jesus' clothes were shining, right, when we were looking at the transfiguration. But Yahweh's face itself, so to speak, shines on us, uh, on every single one of us who are uh, in saving covenant with him. Uh, Yahweh's face shines the very same on us, so we actually have the great privilege to reflect that to each other, um, kind of like Moses, Moses' own face when he beheld the back of God and his face shone, he had to put the veil over his face. But we get to reflect the glory of God in a better way, a more complete way, uh, because we have 
the word. We have the word to proclaim to each other. We have these blessings. Uh, we have the truth of the gospel. So when we reflect the shining face of God to others, it's mutually beneficial. Um, it isn't scary. Uh, th- this image of the shining face uh, is, is brought up quite a bit in Psalms. We're just going to look at a few instances of it. Um, we'll start with Psalm 31, 16. I believe this image of God's face shining really struck a chord with the psalmists, and not just David. Uh, there, are, there are other psalmists in here that use that same image. Um, Psalm 31, verse 16. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. So we have this merciful shining face of God on his servant, equated with being saved uh, according to the steadfast love of God, the gracious love of God. Uh, Turn a few pages to the right to Psalm 67, verse 1. One of the more famous psalms, I would would think, something that comes to mind quickly or gets read relatively often at different places. I actually, I read this psalm at a, at a wedding once. Um, psalm 67, 1. It's going to sound kind of familiar. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Hmm. Sounds pretty familiar, <laughs> given what we've been looking at today. And then a few verses out of Psalm 80. Uh, we're going to look at Psalm 80, verses 3, 7, and 19. So this is a psalm of Asaph. So he too um, uses this, this image. Uh, psalm 80, verse 3. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And then skip down to verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And then in verse 19. Restore us, O Lord, of, o Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So he uses it even as a refrain in that, in that psalm. Let your face shine on us. Let us see <clears throat> your mercy and save your people. Daniel also asks for a similar thing in chapter 9. You don't have to turn there, but he, he asks for the shining face of God to turn toward his temple and fill it once more. Um, so none of these petitions are, are actually asking for a, a visible light to be shown in a particular place, whether at the temple or in the home of the person who's praying this prayer or singing this psalm. Um, so if they're not asking for an actual light, then what are they really asking for? The, this idea would be closely linked to uh, the countenance, the lifted up countenance that we're going to get to in this blessing. But this would be about the benevolent presence of God with his people. Uh, that you would feel the affection of Yahweh for you, to, to have his face, his glorious face turn to you, that you would be seen and, uh, and, and feel closeness with your God. Uh, when I was thinking about this, I, I considered this in terms of the pillars of cloud and fire, uh, where let's say you have a doubting Israelite, they're in the middle of this wandering period, uh, feeling perhaps that they're running around with no purpose, there's no path that they're following, or perhaps even that they've been abandoned. Well, all that that person would have to do is look to where the, depending on the time of day, where the pillar of cloud was or the pillar of fire, and they would know Yahweh's with his people. You know, Yahweh is guiding the nation through the wilderness. I would say that this would be the same type of presence that we're asking to, to see, to have his presence with us confirmed. And of course, since we've already talked about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have that confirmation. You know, God does dwell in his people. Uh, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the testimony of the word, and then we also have prayer, that we would seek God in prayer, that if we do feel alienated from God, which does happen. I mean, it, it's part of the human existence to feel alienated from our God. Um, we can call on him. We can go to the pages of Scripture. We can then see his shining face turn toward us. And and that's supported by Scripture as well in Psalm 119, which is the epic psalm about the the worth, the glory of the Scripture. In two particular verses, 
Um, the, the shining face of God is used um, to equate with the word itself. So Psalm 119, near the end, verses 130 and 135. Okay, Psalm 119, verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And then verse 135. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. So we see this light and the light of God's face being uh, communicated by the words of Scripture, the the words of the law that this entire psalm is about, about the, the glory of. So this is part of that benevolent, shining face of God. And then, of course, uh, let's t- to turn to the New Testament and show the New Covenant uh, aspect of this, 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So this very shining face of God, we have the benefit of having seen in the face of Christ. So the shining face of Yahweh is a a sure and precious promise for us. All right, next is, uh, the Lord be gracious to you. Uh, Now this may seem obvious, uh, but there are many people who miscategorize the Old Testament uh, as lacking the kind of grace that we see in Christ in the New Testament. But that actually could not be further from the truth. It was not incorrect for the people of the Old Testament to to. Uh, ask for to seek the grace of God. Um, there are many gracious instances from the Old Testament. Um, Noah and the ark was a, a story of great grace. Um, the fact of Abraham and Sarah's unbelief and then the birth of Isaac. Um, the sacrificial system alone, uh, while it may seem you know dry and uh, not very interesting for us to read through when we're doing our annual read-through of the Bible, everybody struggles through those first five books. But they are gracious even, because the law even accepts the reality of breaking the law. And so sacrifices would be made to, uh, to reconcile a person. Plus that would foreshadow the work of Christ. Uh, even the wandering in the wilderness was gracious. And then, of course, we could look at the entire life of David as well as a story of incredible grace. Um, Jeremiah 31, two, verses 2 and 3 says that the survivors of Israel who escaped the sword found grace in the wilderness. So there's grace all through the Old Testament, but I believe we as Christians um, have the more sure word about God's grace because we've received it by salvation through Christ. Um, there could be, in my opinion, no, no clearer explanation in Scripture of the grace of God in salvation than Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. <clears throat> you were dead in the trespasses in sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, we're really bad. We're really, we're really, really bad. We don't deserve any grace. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we, I mean, we, we, we know that grace intimately. It's what we celebrate. 
uh, that we have been saved by grace through faith. So God's grace certainly is with us, and all of us who have a testimony of our salvation in Christ uh, can say, yes, God has blessed me with his grace very richly. Um, and as I alluded to earlier in the first chapter of John, we hear that Jesus comes and we receive from him grace upon grace. Uh, the entire Christian life is a story of grace. Uh, what we have, what we've been given, is not deserved in any way. Um, we get good things when we should have received bad things. Um, we can turn to Romans 8, uh, verses 31 and 32, which is another great promise of the grace of God. Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So this grace continues not only in our salvation, the moment of salvation, but even through the entire Christian life. <clears throat> he will give us all things. Um, sometimes those things included in those all things are uh, difficulty and persecution. Uh, those are negative things to us, of course. Uh, we don't enjoy going through times of difficulty or trial or even persecution. Um, but these, even these things are called gracious in Scripture. First Peter, um, you don't have to turn. First Peter 2, 19 and 20 uh, say that very thing. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin... And are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So even that spiritual preparation to take unjust punishment for righteousness, uh, which the church has seen constantly, constantly throughout history, um, is also a gracious thing. So we can confidently say that in comfort or in affliction, those who have called on Christ for his grace do receive it and we receive it in abundance. All right, our next section then is lift up his countenance. So these are some words uh, we may not typically use today. So what, what would be the image here? Um, I would think that this image would not be something that a, uh, a sinner, a worldly person, someone who hasn't known the grace of Christ would even desire. Why would I want to see the countenance of God? But to us, uh, as we've already read, we have, we have his shining face upon us. We've received grace from God. We know that we are kept in him. So we have the promise of his affection for us. So the same word, uh, the same Hebrew word used here for face uh, is also used for countenance. But I think there is a subtle difference. And this is about the, uh, the attitude of that face. Uh, so we were, we were talking about the nearness of God's presence before. So his, <clears throat> his imminence with his people uh, where he is, his closeness to the people that he's reconciled to himself. But now we're talking about how that shining face looks on his people. And it, this would be with favor, with the grace that we just read about. This is the outworking of that grace in looking on God's people. It may seem a little bit reductive, but a lifted countenance is a smile. That's probably the easiest way to say it um, in in. What does a smile communicate to us? You know, that, that somebody looking on us is happy uh, or has, is joyful about something. Uh, it's a beneficial, and really, a, we're comforted by smiles. Uh, we can look at Psalm 84, as I promised, back to the Psalms again. Psalm 84, 11 brings this out uh, a little bit. Psalm 84, 11. This is interesting because, again, we have, uh, we have some helpful poetic language um, using the sun, the S-U-N, uh, to signify this, this uh, joy, this pleasure. Psalm 84, 11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So we have a metaphor here that kind of helps us. 
the warm, the warm glow of the sun, the, the, the pleasant heat of the sun uh, is a metaphor <clears throat> for the favor and honor that Yahweh shows to his people. Uh, this is a little bit of, of uh, God's joyousness coming through. Uh, God is a God of joy. Uh, as it says in Zephaniah three seventeen, that he sings joyously over his people. Um, there's rejoicing before the angels of God over one sinner who repents, which is another Bible verse that some people tend to take strangely because in that verse, God is the instigator of that celebration. You know, there's joy before the angels. So the joy, the celebration of the reconciled sinner starts with God. The angels that are attending him in his throne room then, of course, pick up on that joy and we also experience that joy. So there's, again, like we had a cycle of blessing before, there's a cycle of joy here as well. And that this is no mere emotional happiness. Uh, this is a deep um, spiritual joy that is more than just circumstantial. Uh, you, could, you could very well say that in this instance, everything is very good uh, when you're filled with, with the joy of the Lord. In fact, Nehemiah 8.10 would tell you, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Um, in John 15, Jesus tells us we have his joy, that Jesus not only has joy, but the joy that we have is his own joy. So this joyous countenance of God is something that we are, that is communicated to us in Christ. Yet another blessing to come through Christ. We have another psalm. Let's go to Psalm 4, verses 6 through 8. And this psalm is interesting because this psalm is going to link um, actually the, the rest of this blessing together uh, in, one, in one section here. So Psalm 4, verses 6 through 8. Psalm 4, verses 6 through 8. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So here, it's fascinating. We have again another reference to the light of God's face communicating his joy uh, toward those who are in him. You've put joy in my heart. More joy than when their grain and wine abound. So again, these, the spiritual blessing here supersedes the physical, the, the material blessing of the grain and the wine, uh, which I think is very important. Um, and then we have peace. Uh, so let's talk, let's talk about peace. Uh, the very end of this, of this blessing give you peace. And this Hebrew word is something we're all familiar with, shalom. And this is, I think shalom carries with it a more, a deeper, wider, more expansive meaning than what we typically think of for, as peace, which would be, you know, the absence of conflict, the end of a war or something like that. I mean, it does, I mean, it does include that, right? You know, that's, that's part of that, but it's not the whole thing. Um, Yahweh brings his people peace, total, total and absolute peace. Um, let's, let's look at one example of, of peace um, after conflict, uh, in some internal conflict in 1 Samuel 1, 12 through 17. So 1 Samuel 1, 12 through 17. So we're talking about um, leading up to the birth of the prophet Samuel. This is a passage about his mother, Hannah going through quite a bit of, of internal anguish. And I would say that uh, she was having some sleepless nights <clears throat> and needed some peace. And of course, um, as a believer does, she sought the Lord. So she came to the temple and was praying, was deeply distressed, uh, as it says before these verses, and was weeping, and it caught the attention of Eli. 1 Samuel 1, 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. 
But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. So Eli, being a priest here, he's giving the benediction to this, this daughter of Yahweh. Go in peace, um, and the God of Israel grant your petition. So he's doing what a priest was supposed to be doing. Um, I think this helps paint the picture uh, from that passage in Psalm 4, um, because despite having uh, to make a difficult decision, Hannah would have to go, and she would dedicate her son Samuel to the Lord, and he would grow up in the temple. But she did go away in peace that day. Um, in verse, verse 18, she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So she did receive peace, even though she was about to make a, a very difficult decision once her son was born. Yahweh granted her peace from that woe uh, that she was experiencing. And, uh, and I, I firmly believe that God blessed her and God blessed Samuel as being one of the most consequential prophets uh, in, in the biblical record. Uh, we have a picture of peace as well, of course, in Jesus uh, calming the Sea of Galilee uh, during the storm. You know, we have no way of changing the weather. Uh, people would change their, uh, their fishing plans based on if a storm was going to come over the Sea of Galilee. They simply had to work with the circumstances. And it was such a jarring thing, I believe, for the, uh, for the disciples to see Jesus calm those waters because nobody can calm the waters of the Sea of Galilee. Only God alone can. Ephesians 2.17 said that Christ came to proclaim peace to those who are near, which would have at that time would have been folks in Israel and the areas close by, and to those who are far off, that would be us. So that very same power of Christ to calm the seas, uh, to calm uh, a, a very dangerous body of water, small as it is, uh, when a storm was on it, that very same peace is ours in Christ. So that's the ultimate sense of peace for us, would be peace with God. So in Christ, the, the sinful, treasonous war that we have against God in our sin is over. It, it's finished, and we're reconciled. Uh, turn to Romans 4.20, if you will. And we're, um, we're going to read a little section here that I think really brings out the, the full implication of peace with God, shalom before God uh, from Paul. We're actually we're going to start in 4:20, but we'll go through uh, chapter 5, verse 2. Uh, we're going to just drop into his argument a little bit here. Romans 4:20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the prof- the promise of God. Talking about Abraham. Um, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, <clears throat> fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the word it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from, who raised from the dead Christ Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Like I said, I think this might be the actual best exposition of the meaning of the word shalom for the Christian. Yes, there is a war that's over, and peace is achieved through the absence of conflict, but there is so much more reconciliation here than simply two opposing forces ceasing their war. We have peace with God, who is our sworn enemy, but we are now adopted into the family of God uh, by covenant. Uh, We've obtained an inheritance, uh, having been predestined. Uh, That's what Ephesians 1 says about this, that we've been predestined and we have an inheritance. Uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 4, describes that same inheritance this way, as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So this is the best of inheritances. This is not... This is not inheriting moldy money from, from some ancient great-grandparent that you never met. This is an imminent, very precious, very important blessing for us. Uh, this, is, uh, 
being fellow heirs. Uh, even scripture says it that way. So we're, we're called to be part of the family of God and we share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That we sit, the fact that we can sit at his table every Lord's Day when we take communion uh, really communicates this peace with us. We who were enemies of God now sit at the table of the God who reconciled us, who we were desperate to disobey. Uh, as R.C. Sproul says, we're, we had committed cosmic treason against the holy God. And yet here we are, here we are today, reconciled in faith uh, through the work of Christ. Uh, and we now feast at his table. We feast on his grace, not only daily, but we feast together when we come for corporate worship on the Lord's Day, which I think is a very, um, very powerful example of just what this peace does for us. Um, we are reconciled. We're children in, instead of enemies of the holy God. So I say all this to say that this Old Testament blessing, which is kind of jammed in the middle of the Mosaic law, hopefully has clearly come out to be very relevant to the Christian, <clears throat> very encouraging, uh, and that we see these very sure and, and powerful promises uh, come true for us, uh, that they're, they're for us and they're beneficial for us to, to read and to study. Any questions? Any comments? All right, well, we're, we're about out of time, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here together today. <clears throat> I pray that, uh, that you bless this time that we've spent looking over your word. I pray that this, uh, this blessing it will ring true in each of our hearts if we have known you, if we have known the grace of Christ. Uh, help us to know that your blessing is with us, that you, you keep us, you protect us, you smile with your favor on us, not for our own works, but because of Christ in us. So we're thankful, and we pray that you would uh, bless our time of worship today um, and restore our hearts, uh, make your covenant beautiful to us, and send us out here with uh, a renewed passion for your word, for the gospel for the souls of those lost. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Mm.